In this episode, we look at input and output. These two simple words can appear, well, I guess, simple, but there's a lot to explore when it comes to what they actually look like in the classroom. This is the fourth of five episodes dedicated to the book Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom by Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins. In two weeks, you'll hear the final episode in this series, and that's going to be a conversation with the authors. But for now, let's spend some time with input and output as guided by Henshaw and Hawkins in their book Common Ground. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Bonjour, mes amis. Hola, mis amigos. Welcome to the World Language Classroom Podcast. I am Joshua Cabral, and thank you, as always, for taking the time out of your week to have this opportunity to think about your teaching, to hear about what's going on in other classrooms, and what people are saying and writing about when it comes to language teaching and learning, and then taking that, looking at your own teaching and modifying it, being reassured, all of that is what makes you an incredibly effective and dedicated teacher. So thank you for taking the time to be with me every week so that we can collaborate and do this in all of our classrooms. So as I said in the intro, we are going to be talking about another aspect of the book Common Ground, And it is the ideas of input and output. As I indicated, they can appear to be fairly simple terms. You know, input is what goes in and output is what goes out. But truly understanding fundamentally what that means in a language classroom in terms of the language that students are tending to in terms of input. What is that language? How is it useful? What are they going to do with that language? There's a lot to unpack with that. And then when we flip to looking at output, so then once they have developed this language system through the input, tending to input, then how does that transition to output and the language that they're actually producing? So we'll be looking at both of these ideas fairly separately and then sort of bring them together at the end. But the way they're approached within Common Ground is there's a section that is input-based. So I will say it's a couple of chapters. It starts with the idea of input, and then it's followed up with chapters on the modes that deal mostly with input. So that would be the interpretive listening, interpretive reading. And then the other section on output really dives deep first into the idea of output, and then it's followed up by chapters that focus on more of, I would call them the output modes, which would be the presentational, whether that's writing or presentational speaking modes. So before we dive into this whole idea of input and output... I'd like to do just a quick recap in case you have been listening or maybe you haven't caught all the episodes in this series. I just want to do a fairly quick recap of some of the guiding principles because a understanding of these guiding principles, which is in a previous episode, they're going to help us to understand 
a lot of what Henshaw and Hawkins are presenting to us with these ideas of input and output. The first recap of the whole idea of guiding principles is this idea of what is acquisition and what is communication. And if we truly understand what acquisition and communication are, then this whole idea of input and output will make a lot more sense. So when we talk about acquisition, and this is all based on what is shown to us, presented to us in Common Ground by Henshaw and Hawkins, and they say that acquisition, to quote them, is the mostly implicit process of building a linguistic system by making form meaning connections from the input. So essentially, it's what happens subconsciously while we are busy understanding messages. So already we're talking about input there. So it's this implicit process. That's what acquisition is. So it's not an explicit process where you're explaining the language. It's this implicit process. So by tending to that message and making meaning of it, those form meaning connections, they're starting to subconsciously create this linguistic system. That's really what acquisition is. So it's a process that we can't consciously control. And I call that one of the deep breath moments because it's a bit of a departure from traditional legacy approaches to language teaching. This idea that explicitly teaching about the language is what's going to lead to learning or acquisition, that it's not truly a process that we can consciously control. So what we're doing is we're providing opportunities for students to make meaning and understand the message. And so subconsciously things start to happen where they're building this linguistic system. So it's the parts of the input that we understand of the message that are more likely to get processed. And again, I'm quoting directly from Henshaw and Hawkins here, that it's those parts of the input that help us understand the message that are more likely to get processed. And again, that's happening on a subconscious level, starting to find those patterns and making meaning of it. So what this comes down to is that we don't acquire language by learning its rules and applying them. So the magic, again, Henshaw Hawkins' word, the magic happens outside of the conscious zone. So that's the whole idea of acquisition. That's one of the major guiding principles of this book. And then the next part to look at as a quick recap so that we can really dive into input and output is... The idea of what is communication. So we saw what acquisition is. So then what is communication? And acquisition really focused on that input aspect and making meaning of what students are hearing or reading. So now when it comes to communication, this is, again, to quote the authors, it's the purposeful interpretation and or expression of meaning. So we're starting to look when we're talking about communication a bit more of the transition from input and then to output, and then sort of the interplay and the back and forth of both. When we're talking about the idea of what is communication, Henshaw and Hawkins give us two powerful questions that we can keep in mind when we're considering whether or not what students are doing is truly and authentically communication. The first question is, what information or content is being conveyed? So again, that would be rather output. And then what will the audience do with the information? So here's this whole idea now. These are output. So what is being conveyed? And then what am I as the audience member, as the listener, going to do with what you just said? 
if I'm not going to do anything with it and there's no response that you know that I even understood that, it's not truly an authentically communication. So we need to take this idea of acquisition. What is that? Remember, it's that subconscious process of sort of the rule formation, the linguistic system. And then what is communication? So what's being conveyed and what's going to be done with it? So if we really look fundamentally at what acquisition and communication are, then we can have a true fundamental understanding of the role of input and output. So let's start with input. If learners are not understanding, then they cannot make those four meaning connections. That was the fundamental guiding principle when we just talked about acquisition. So if learners are not understanding, they cannot make form meaning connections. They are not building that linguistic system that then they can use for communicative purposes, that they can use to communicate. So what exactly is input and what counts as input and what is not? Because we might think, oh, yes, I'm providing this input to students. They're reading or they're listening to something. Therefore, it's input. Hmm. But is it really? So what truly counts as input that I guess we can say is effective input for helping students to subconsciously be building that linguistic system? And there is an example that the authors give in the book, and it's two tasks or activities that they ask students to do. And you sort of have to decide which one of these is effective input, meaning that students will be able to tend to the meaning, make meaning of what they're reading or hearing, and then because of that, start to build that linguistic system. And so the two tasks that they say, the first one is students read a dialogue between a waiter and a customer, and then they act it out in class. So that's the first task. So we can look at it as they are reading a dialogue, right? So they are having input. It's written input. So they're accessing this mode of interpretive reading, right? So that's input. And they have to sort of make some meaning from it, right, to understand it. And then they act it out in class. So is that effective input for students to build their linguistic system. So the second task is students get 10 steps for a recipe in the wrong order. So then they put the steps in order and then try to figure out what the recipe is for. So now if you look at both of those, which one of those has effective input for students to tend to the meeting and start to build a linguistic system. I think by now listening to this, you can clearly see that it's the 10 steps for putting together this recipe that's in the wrong order because students have to understand each individual step. So they have to tend to the meaning of each individual step and then put it in order. And then is the extra step to say, okay, now not just the individual steps and words and structures do I understand to make meaning of, but as a whole, what can I glean from this and what could this possibly be a recipe for and putting all the pieces together. So again, what content was conveyed and then what is being done with that content that's being conveyed. So it's that communication piece again. Whereas when we look at the dialogue, there's nothing truly being done with it. And you don't have to actually understand every word if you're acting it out and you maybe get the gist of it, but maybe there's some complication you don't get and you're not actually doing anything with the meaning of it. And with the other activity, when you're truly making meaning of the different steps is when you're building those subconscious 
rules that are happening in your linguistic system. Students, as Krashen says, students should be able and compelled to understand. You know, so when we're looking at those two activities, what's really truly compelling the students to learn this dialogue and then present it? There's nothing personal about it. They don't have to really think about what it is. But in the other activity where they have to make meaning of the different steps and then try to figure out what it could possibly be for, that's more of a motivation and a compelling aspect for students. So that goes down to that whole idea with Krashen of students being compelled to understand that it's not just comprehensible input, but it's also compelling input. So as we are talking about this idea of comprehensible input from Stephen Krashen, that's really what a lot of this, to me, feels like it's based on here. So it's coming down to Krashen's input hypothesis. We talk a lot about comprehensible input, CI, but there's this idea also that we have to keep in mind that Krashen's input hypothesis is only one of several components of his entire monitor model. It also includes the affective filter hypothesis, the natural order hypothesis, the distinction between acquisition and learning. So we don't always bring those into this discussion when we say comprehensible input, but they really need to be brought all together. But to look individually at the input hypothesis within Krashen's monitor model, so Krashen's input hypothesis states that learners progress in their knowledge of the language when they comprehend language input that is slightly more advanced than their current level. And you may have heard of I plus one. That's kind of the symbol that is used when we talk about comprehensible input in CI, where the I is the learner's interlanguage, their current ability with the language to understand. And then the plus one is that next stage just beyond. And that's what's going to lead to acquisition. So if you want to dive a little deeper into Krashen's input hypothesis, I'm going to link episode 32, where I go really in depth about his entire input hypothesis and monitor model. So episode 32, it'd be linked in the show notes. But essentially, when we talk about Krashen and input, we can't talk about input without Stephen Krashen because he has his own whole input hypothesis. So of course, the authors of Common Ground had to dedicate some time to this. And when it comes to Stephen Krashen, I spent so much time in graduate school when I was studying applied linguistics talking about Stephen Krashen and the monitor model. We were basically taught or it was highly suggested to us that we be incredibly critical of the monitor model because it was overly simplified. There was all this stuff about it. But though Krashen's ideas have been criticized, and I think we do have to consider that, so though his ideas have been criticized, there is strong agreement on the need for input that is comprehensible. So even if we don't take all the aspects of what Krashen said with his input hypothesis and take them all and say, absolute, this is the thing, or absolutely not, he was one of the first researchers, theorists out there to put it out there that this role of input is essential. So if you want to criticize Krashen for any other reason, it is an opportunity to just credit Krashen with this idea of input being so essential and for comprehension to happen that students need to understand the input. 
despite some of the criticism, and I actually do not engage in a lot of crash and bashing, which is what we used to call it in graduate school, I really find a lot of the work of Stephen Krashen to be incredibly beneficial. And as with any sort of theory that's out there, it's going to have parts that you're going to buy into. You're going to see effective uh, data that shows that that truly works, but perhaps not always. But in 2021, there was an article published by Van Patten and Lichtman, 2021, and it was entitled, Was Crashing Right 40 Years Later? And what they essentially found is that the ideas have evolved and are still driving second language acquisition research today. They're often unacknowledged when they come under new terminology. So the whole idea of the input hypothesis is comprehensible input now, or the distinction between acquisition and learning is what we're looking at when we talk about implicit and explicit grammar instruction. So a lot of Krashen's ideas are still driving second language acquisition research today, and they're just being used under new terminology, but I think it's important to step back and really understand where that came from. So when we're talking about input, and I know I went on about Krashen for a little bit, but he really is a person that we, we need to look to for really having shared this idea with us about the importance of input. So we can't talk about input without Krashen coming up. And as you will see in Common Ground, if you've read it, or if you're going to read it, and hopefully you will, I highly recommend it, that you will see that there's time dedicated to Krashen and his input hypothesis because it really is continuing to be foundational and the way we are going about language teaching today. So when we look at input and making input comprehensible for students, so if we just jump back to the beginning when we started talking about this, that we want students to make form meaning connections with the input, whether they're listening or they're reading. So how can we help students to make sure that the topic and the text type are appropriate so that they're able to make meaning from it, right? So we have to look at their proficiency level. So we have to make sure that we are providing input to students that are at their proficiency level. And to help scaffold that or support that, we can use things like visual clues, we can do body language, we can use target language equivalents like cognates, we can use examples of common associations, like uh, if you want to use the word team, and students perhaps don't know the word team, but you could say the Red Sox or the Yankees or something or Manchester United. And you'd be like, oh, okay, so those are teams. So you're using those recognizable brands. And you could perhaps slow down, simplify language, and always circumlocute, you know, and that's really this idea of that I plus one where I is their current level. And then that plus one is just a bit beyond. And so learners are going to use their I, their current level to understand those things that they don't. And that's the whole process where subconsciously, they're going to be creating this linguistic system. So as we are presenting this compelling, hopefully, input to students, there's often talk of authentic resources. 
So this idea is evolving a little bit right now with what the word authentic actually means. There is an opportunity to dive really deep within Common Ground about this, and there's often Twitter chats about it and what makes truly a resource authentic, and is it authentic if you're not using it for its authentic purpose, even though it is created within a culture for speakers of the same language in that culture, but you're not using it for the intended purpose, so does that make it authentic anymore? There's a lot going around about authentic resources and truly what that word means, so I will leave that to the Twittersphere to engage with that a bit more. But as we are presenting input that's compelling to students, sometimes authentic resources are going to be an ideal way to do that. And as we're presenting the input, we need to make sure that we're not just having students read, 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 listen, 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 and we're not doing comprehension checks. By doing comprehension checks, two things happen, essentially. One is we're keeping it communicative rather than just all one way. And also that comprehension check is going to make sure that students are actually making meaning out of what they're reading or what they are listening to. And so that's going to help them to focus on form meaning. And a byproduct of that will be focusing on forms with an S, which would be the structure. Focus on form, focus on forms is a another hot topic in the world of language teaching right now. But we want to make sure that students are focusing on the form and making meaning, and then secondarily to focus on the forms that help them to understand that. Another deep breath moment, because this is a, a bit taking a, a step away from the legacy teaching, but just remember that explicit instruction is not necessary for acquisition. Now, I did say not necessary. There's always going to be schools of thought that there are times when it could be useful. But if it is just explicit and there's not that opportunity for form meaning connection, then acquisition isn't truly going to happen. So just keeping in mind that teaching rules does not speed up the process, even though that could be the feeling because, oh, that's the way I learned it, but it's not really borne out in the research. And unfortunately, the research is biased toward measuring explicit knowledge of the language, and we need to have more research that is less biased in that direction that we can look at the implicit knowledge of the language. So here's a little bit of an exhale, and I will credit this back to Henshawn Hawkins in Common Ground, is that drawing learners' attention to grammatical forms within the course of meaningful communication might facilitate language development because it might help learners make or strengthen that form-meaning connection. So as I was saying, focus on form, focus on forms, there may be a place for that. So it's not a right or wrong, this or that. It's just we want to keep things communicative. And remember that word might, because nothing is going to guarantee acquisition. And even when we look at something like PACE, the PACE model, that way of presenting or teaching, quote unquote, grammar to students, it's essentially teaching rules. Even though it's done in a communicative way, it is essentially, in the end, teaching the rules about the language. So it's important that whenever we're doing input, and I know there's a lot to take in when we're talking about input here, but we should lead with meaningful content and comprehensible and compelling input. And if needed, clarify something grammatically along the way. 
So that's the very idea of common ground, you know, and again, we're talking about the book Common Ground. I really appreciate the way the authors put it out there because they're not making us make a choice or perhaps we do make a choice in the end, but we're doing it in a way that is very informed. Like we have all of the information we need to make informed choices and making sure that we are going to lead with meaningful content that is comprehensible and compelling and as needed, perhaps there is something grammatical that comes up along the way, right? So there's that might, perhaps, common ground in there. But when we do it, we are doing it in a way that is truly informed rather than just, you know, what all the cool teachers are doing. So there's input. So now I want to turn our attention to the idea of output. So input is about making that form meaning connection and that subconscious language system developing based on finding meaning in what they are hearing or reading. So a lot of time is spent on input and not as much on output and uh, for good reason, right? Because we are talking about comprehensible input all the time. That's what you see in all the Facebook groups and everyone's talking about CI and comprehensible input. But we also need to eventually get to this place of output. So output is defined as producing the target language in order to express meaning. So it's not just language production, okay? And this is Henshaw and Hawkins. I'm quoting them right here as well. It is not just language production. You're just producing language, but you're producing the target language in order to express meaning. Because remember that whole idea of what is communication, what's the content, and then what am I going to do with that content that I just heard you say, right? So output is defined as producing the language in order to express meaning. It's not just about production. So the output hypothesis, so we have the input hypothesis and the output hypothesis, input hypothesis is crashing, and the output hypothesis is Merrill Swain. So according to Swain, when learners are pushed to produce an accurate and meaningful message, it facilitates language development because it helps to pay more attention to the linguistic form. So output helps learners notice or realize what they do not know, and their language develops as they fill in those gaps. So they also have the opportunity to test I spent a lot of time uh, with Swain when I was doing uh, my work with applied linguistics and really figuring out what's the role of this and really came to a common ground with that because when students are producing language, language production, whether or not it's in a meaningful context, but when we hear students create with language, we do get a sense of what they have acquired or perhaps what they've learned and what they have not. And that is a formative assessment kind of in the moment for our teaching practice of where we might want to go next. And if we don't have the output and we're just focusing on input, then we don't necessarily have a very concrete understanding of that. So that's how I sort of make sense of Swain's output hypothesis. So I don't think in any way that the output is helping to build the linguistic system and the way the input is, but I do think that there is a place for Merrill Swain's idea of this output hypothesis, and it's more in the part of the teacher and what we can learn about where we're going to go next with our teaching in the classroom based on the language that students are producing. 
So now Henshaw and Hawkins speak about this as well, and they say that output doesn't build the linguistic system, only input does, right? So we've already established that. But output might help learners realize what they need from the input. So in that case, you might say that output is helpful, but maybe just a little, right? So output is not going to be detrimental. It's just not necessarily going to be the part of the language acquisition process that's going to build the language system. That's definitely going to be input. But there are useful parts for output. And essentially, in the end, we want students to be able to do all of the modes. And some of those modes are going to require interpersonal speaking and writing that is going to involve output. So we do want to make sure that there are opportunities not just for input, but then output. It's just a question of what's that output going to be and what is it going to look like. So saying that input is necessary doesn't mean that output is not. You know, and textbooks and legacy teaching, as I like to call it, they focus on output because input is seen as something passive, right? So it's students aren't doing anything when they're actually doing a lot, particularly on the subconscious level. So there's this association of the word communication with speaking and writing output, but there is no other communication mode like interpretive listening and reading the input, which are equally, if not more important, particularly at the earlier times of engaging with a language. So how much input should we provide before we ask students to produce or communicate with the language. So the authors of Common Ground uh, do say that there is no magic ratio for this, you know, so we want to provide communicative input and allow the system, the language system, time to develop, particularly at the novice level, and then students will engage in the output. And personally, for me, in my teaching, this is a question that I really want to explore with Henshaw and Hawkins when I have my conversation with them, this idea of the transition from input to output, how much, how often, what do tasks look like, and I really want to look at the idea of novice output, intermediate, advanced output, and moving students from this idea of memorize the language that is their output and then starting to create with language. And how do you create tasks that promote creation with language rather than just relying on memorized chunks of language, which is more at that novice level? And is there a way to do that? Do the tasks look different? Or I could be completely off base with this, and it's nothing that we as teachers actually have to do, and it's going to be a natural part of the acquisition process that learners will organically start producing and creating on their own uh, rather than relying on the memorized stuff. I actually don't have the answer to that, so I'm looking forward to exploring that topic uh, with the authors of Common Ground in the coming weeks. So when it comes to input and output in the classroom, you know, what does that look like when it's actually in the classroom? So at the end of each chapter in Common Ground, there's the very useful what does it look like in the classroom section. 
and there is considerable time dedicated to presentational writing and how to work on that with students. Looking at this idea that when it comes to presentational writing, there might be an editing process and what a rubrics look like with that, you know, but it's taking this whole idea of keeping it communicative and really looking also at the idea of IPAs, integrated performance assessments, and having some input and output with that. But in looking at the output in the classroom, there is a particular focus on presentational writing, which again, if we do that too early in the process, is that detrimental? Should we wait until there's considerable input before asking students to write or even have conversations? So a lot of that is what I'm going to want to explore uh, with Henshaw and Hawkins when we get to have our conversation about that. So make sure that in two weeks you listen to that episode so you can get all the answers to that as well. So much like Florencia Henshaw says on her YouTube channel when she unpacks research articles, I will say to you that this is all my take on my reading of Common Ground and everything that I've done in my classroom and the experiences I've had, the graduate work I've done in linguistics. It's all my take based on that, but I encourage you to read it for yourself so that you can get all the details and see all the examples and you can draw your own conclusions and then hopefully we will find a way for you to share that out whether that's in Facebook groups or on Twitter you can throw something on Instagram but I would just love to hear what your takeaways are and your understandings are so it's not just sort of the echo chamber of what Joshua is finding in this book. So there is a link in the show notes to get your own copy of Common Ground, which hopefully you're inspired to do at this point. And Florencia Henshaw mentioned to Hackett Publishing, who published the book, that I was going to be doing a series of episodes unpacking the book. And they reached out to me and offered a 25% discount on the book for listeners. So that is you. So use the link in the show notes and be sure to use the discount code, which is also in the show notes. It's WLC. 2022. So WLC 2022. And remember, I will speak with Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins all about common ground in the coming weeks. And we'll take on some of the what ifs and what abouts. And I really want to get into that question about novice output and intermediate output and advanced output. But I don't want this to be a closed space and an echo chamber of just my thoughts and experiences. So please share your thoughts. What are your whatabouts and your personal experiences or questions or clarifications so that I can include that in my conversation with Florencia and Maris. So you can tweet them or message me on Instagram. I'm at WL Classroom on both. You can put questions in my Facebook group, also in the show notes, or you can always email me your thoughts and questions at joshua at wlclassroom.com. You'll also see in the show notes that I've added a new section where I'm inviting you to be a guest on the podcast with me. So if that's of any interest to you and you have some proud things in your classroom that you would like to share, we would love to hear about it. So there is a link where you can get in touch with me so we can start that discussion as well. So also in the show notes, you'll see a link for Talking Points, my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. And there are also links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together either in person in your school or remotely. So that's it for Common Ground for this week, and I will talk to you soon. Bye for now.
You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.